This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Science Friction. Natasha Mitchell here with you for Culture, Science and Spice. Now, imagine a scientist synthesises a novel biological organism. It's not something known to nature. It's, it's synthetic, human-made. And their intentions are good, really good. Maybe they're developing a biotechnology that could wipe out a deadly mosquito-borne virus. So that's great, right? But then that organism unintentionally escapes the lab and does things it isn't meant to. Now, you might call that bio-error. It was a mistake. No one intended any harm. But what if they did? So from bio-error in the last show to bio-terror in this show, what are the risks of biotech becoming a new tool for those with malicious intent? And how would we know if they were plotting something? What signs would we even look out for? This was all considered at a recent NATO peace and security workshop in Switzerland with global leaders in synthetic biology and security. I was the only journalist on the ground and the conversations were very frank. So the best anecdote I've heard was the FBI receiving a phone call from a company who had just received an order for a toxin. It was below the legal threshold, so the order was completely legitimate. But the person that had taken the order on the telephone was just not comfortable. There wasn't something quite right. Dr. Piers Millet spent more than a decade working for the UN Biological Weapons Convention. That's the international treaty that banned the use of disease and other biological agents or toxins as weapons. The fact actually that most of the people placing an order like the one received over the telephone would be ordering maybe a hundred times less than the order that was placed. When it turns out that individual had been placing similar orders at multiple different companies and had stockpiled a horrendous amount of these very, very nasty toxins. And in fact, I believe in this case, they were intending to kill their spouse with it, but they could have had much more malicious intent. It could have been many more lives. The targets of biological weapons are expanding. Dr Philip Alensos from King's College London specialises in security, synthetic biology and biological weapons. Previously, it's been all about making people sick, possibly to the extent that they die. But we are now, with the science, able to target, say, directly the immune system. Or we are able to directly target our genome or we're able to directly target our nervous system, or even the microbiome, the bacteria in your gut, that is really enabling a new kind of threat. Equally, you can also imagine scenarios where some of this technology allows you to create systems that damage things that traditionally we haven't broken down. So maybe it's electronics, maybe it's plastics, maybe it's oil. You can use biological agents to degrade things that we really want to find useful. In other words, we could use biological weapons in the sense that they could destroy organisms or systems that we are reliant on. Absolutely. And one of the trends we can see quite clearly around the world is an increasing focus on biotechnology and the bioeconomy to help generate wealth, to solve problems. We need to be more worried about how nefarious actors, how bad guys and girls could damage that biology that we're using. Animals can also be the target of biological misuse. Crops, and again, there are whole new capabilities that are developing for how we can deliberately modify and spread viruses to 
plant community to the animal community that form really significant threats. But you know, this ability to build technologies that are biologically targeted is precisely what makes synthetic biology so exciting in terms of its possible applications. And so before we consider the perils, let's get a glimpse of that promise. You know, we live in a world that is built out of carbon and oxygen and water, and yet we've spent the last 20, 30, 40 years concentrating on metals and, and silicons and things. And so we had the Industrial Revolution, the age of physics was the atomic age. We're at the cusp of the age of biology now. With big possibilities, says Dr. Peter Emanuel from the US Army, where he's senior research scientist for bioengineering. Now, synthetic biology is all about applying an engineering mindset to biology and to DNA. So using the toolbox of genetics to build useful things, say organisms or machines or, or materials. In theory, the sky's the limit. Dr. Piers Millet now heads up safety and security with iGEM, which is the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. It's this huge annual contest for students and citizens and scientists to use synthetic biology to try to solve real-world problems. So from, say, designing biofuels to bug controls for crops... Anything that lives, anything that involves biology, we can find out, understand how those systems work. We can manipulate them, basically harness the power of biology and apply it in a safe, secure, meaningful way to do what we want to do with it. This sits at the heart of many of our biggest global challenges today. How are we going to feed 10 billion people? We need to find better ways to be able to make nutrition. We need to make more sustainable sources of meat, for example. They are all based upon biology. Disease is another one. We see new emerging diseases wreaking havoc around the world. There are old diseases that are re-emerging and things that we've just never been able to tackle before. Dr Peter Emanuel. What makes synthetic biology interesting is that at the molecular level, the control over the molecular structure gives us an exquisite opportunity to be able to manipulate the specific properties of of a material. And so from our perspective, that's where the power lies. It's going to find its way into everything from the screen on your iPhone to milkshakes that you can drink and probiotics that would maybe give you an energy boost after lunch. My interest is specifically in the material science aspect, and so it's going to be epoxies and films and resins that find their way into pencils and tables and notebooks. And, you know, we have shoes and uniforms that essentially could be responsive and reactive, that could be able to sense the environment, that could be able to give you indications of the the health status of an individual. Other people, you know, my good friends are looking at medicines and treatments for, for diseases like cancer. Over at the US Army's environmental arm, where senior scientist Dr Edward Perkins leads a team, health and wellbeing are his focus too, the health of ecosystems and of humans. We're working on projects where we want to be able to take a bacteria that can record the inside of the gut or your stomach as it passes through it and you can recover it on the opposite side, so to speak, analyze and then measure what did this bacteria experience inside your body so you can actually see how is your stomach performing 
And this has implications in understanding how you react to stress, how you react to medications. Ed and colleagues are experimenting with other possibilities too. So, for example, could biological molecules be embedded in coatings or materials to change their properties? So maybe render them invisible to radar during combat? At the other end of the spectrum, the heavily polluting fashion industry might be able to deploy synthetic biology to produce materials and dyes more sustainably. So I think you're getting the picture. Scientists are excited about the prospects of synthetic biology, or synbio as they call it. But crossing now to the darker side of this science... Rebecca Moritz assesses and manages the risks of biological research in the labs of her university, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It is opening up a whole new potential avenue of risks, and it's very freely accessible to many, many different researchers. It can be used in many different organisms, cells, you know, it kind of seems limitless right now. And I think that is the scariest piece of it, is especially that our biosafety and biosecurity guidelines, regulations, and policies aren't advanced enough to really incorporate the potential risks that these technologies pose right now. We heard from Rebecca last week about the very interesting but controversial research on her campus that had modified bird flu so it's transmissible in mammals. The work got shut down for four years until earlier this year because of concerns it could escape the lab and infect humans. It is possible that you could use some of these technologies to get your hands on things that would have been very difficult to get in the past, some really nasty pathogens that basically are locked up in some very secure laboratories around the world. It is possible to remake them using some of these technologies. It may also, as we move forward to the future, be possible to create new types of of pathogen or new types of organism that do us harm than the early generation weapons from, from the middle years of last century. Pierre's Millet's work in science policy and international security has long focused on preventing biotechnology being used as a weapon. A lot of the concern comes in the democratisation of biology. The more people that can use biology, the more people that have access to powerful biological technologies, the greater the risk that sooner or later somebody is going to do something nasty or irresponsible with it. And that's where I would push back a little bit. Dr Philippa Lensos, biosecurity scholar and NGO coordinator for the UN Biological Weapons Convention, downplays the risk that terrorists might turn to biology. Traditionally, terrorists go for things that have immediate impacts, things that would, you know, almost just say boom, not something complicated like biology. Reports are just coming in of an explosion at Liverpool Street Station here in London. Literally, there was just a very loud bang. Uh, the train derailed. There was smoke everywhere. Was Everyone thought they were going to die. People started saying prayers, praying to God. And looked out onto the street to see these men slashing the and stabbing multiple victims. The attack began on London Bridge road, just when well, the men drove a van at pedestrians. This is what terror looks like. If we look at past cases of bioterrorism, and there are very, very few, a handful, essentially, is what we're talking. Philip Alenso says we need to look at the history of biological weapons to help us assess the risk now. We see that it's been very difficult to weaponize a, a bacteria because just because you're able to, say, design an organism doesn't mean you have a weapon, right? A biological weapon has two components to it. 
One of those is the bacteria, the pathogen, the virus. And the second part is the delivery mechanism. And that's where most non-state actors, most terrorists in the past have failed. So those terrorists would have to be biologists. But as we've heard, biology and its tools are increasingly becoming democratised. As one example, the so-called DIY bio or citizen science movement. It's taking off. Everyday citizens are becoming biohackers, setting up labs in local communities or even their homes, and doing hands-on experiments with genetic engineering and synthetic biology. And some are concerned this movement could be incubating wannabe terrorists. Dr Todd Kukin from the Genetic Engineering and Society Centre at North Carolina State University works closely with this movement and says they're in fact ahead of the curve when it comes to managing risks. They also have a much brighter light shined on them, right? So even from the early days, these questions of biosecurity have always been raised about DIY bio. So, right, so the, the rogue scientists in their basement creating some mythological pathogen that wreaks havoc on the world has always been, unfortunately, connected to the community. You know, for me, community labs are nearly impossible to do something nefarious because everything is done in the open, right? So if, if you and I are sitting at the lab bench next to each other and I and you look over and I'm doing something that looks either dangerous by just because I'm doing something dumb, or you know, if I look over at you and I'm like, wait a minute, that seems a little fishy, someone will say something. Either I'm gonna say something or you're gonna say something or the rest of the community lab will say something. So that notion of, of a community lab I reduces that risk already just based on the openness and the transparency of it versus a researcher in their own lab locked away behind a locked door, you know, in secrecy. There's a culture in science of open access and of sharing of information and putting DNA sequences into databases that are public for scientists to use around the world. So there's a rich discussion about whether or not some of that information should be quarantined or not made so public, because information itself becomes a hazard if if it gets into the hands of labs with nefarious intent. Right, and I think that's what makes this somewhat unusual. US Army scientist Ed Perkins. Now the um, you've got kits you can buy from companies to do certain certain parts of the synthetic biology, and some of the components are easy to buy. All you really need is information on how to assemble them. So, potentially, if you release how to assemble a, a pathogenic virus genome from DNA, and so sort of democratizing the ability to do complex uh, science projects like that really creates a lot more heightened risk. Dr. Todd Kukin. I think I lean on the side of openness is better than secrecy because, you know, if you don't make it completely open, then in essence, you're having to trust sort of who's keeping it behind sort of a wall. And so common sense is maybe the easiest way to go where, you know, you look at something and you sort of say, okay, well, maybe this one should go out for everyone to see at the moment until we can figure out the best way to sort of, you know, relay this information in a way that that's beneficial for, for everyone. US Army senior scientist Dr Peter Emanuel says citizen scientists have been on the military's radar for decades. But in fact, the relationship has been surprisingly strong, possibly, yes, to keep an eye on them, to manage security risks. 
but also to harness their good ideas. If you look at a model rocketry, if you look at, at amateur photography, if you look at ham radio, these are all technically based do-it-yourself communities that have existed over the last uh, hundred years. And they, um, in ham radio, they, they developed a code of ethics. This is what you say on the radio, and this is what you don't say on the radio, and we're polite, and we don't use curse. And in model rocketry, they say, this is how you send up a rocket safely. And the Department of Defense actually engaged model rocketry. They actually helped them, and they set up you know, model rocketry associations. Those become the innovators of the future. And those are the people that you end up hiring to help you send the Apollo rocket to the moon. The people that are doing ham radio, they become your communication specialists. And so I think if you look at DIY bio, it's no different. I would pose the question, are we going to look back on our, our fear of DIY bio in 50 years and, and laugh about it and be like, oh, I don't, what were we so worried about? But people are worried about new tools to wage bioterror getting into the wrong hands. Daniel Feeks is chief of the unit that runs the UN Biological Weapons Convention. This is one thing that governments are worried about, intelligence agencies are worried about, terrorists may be looking for, you know, other ways to inflict terror. And if you're lowering barriers and making things easier and cheaper to do, it may be that you're making them more accessible for non-state actors, terrorist groups, even, you know, down to the level of, you know, individuals who may have malicious intent as well. So how would we know whether any of those people have unleashed or are brewing something nasty? What are the clues that we need to be looking for? That's not straightforward. Dr Philippa Lensos. A biological, biological terrorist incident, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's happened, right? Because people are getting sick. Maybe they would start to die, but it might be a few days. It might be some weeks before people piece together the fact that the sick people showing up in this hospital and the sick people showing up in this hospital are related. Ideally then, authorities need to be able to intervene before a bioterror attack is unleashed. And this is just as difficult because biological experiments are being conducted in labs all over the world every day. And at face value, how do you tell which ones are suspect and which ones are legitimate science? Daniel Feeks from the UN Biological Weapons Convention. You may be aware of you know, a particular facility, a laboratory, for example, but it doesn't publish. Its scientists don't publish anything. Scientists, at the end of the day, they do their research and they want the world to know what they're doing. They want their research to be out there. There could be other reasons for it as well, but that may be an indicator. Mm. Okay, so that's one. Well, this is one of the things with biological weapons as well. It's, it's quite a grey area there because many of the activities that you may need to do if you had kind of nefarious intent could be the same things that you need to be doing if you're trying to defend your, your population, your, you know, your troops against a particular biological agent as well. So it, it's very hard and, and, you know, doing inspections, it's very hard to know what you're actually looking for. You know, a facility that may be producing a vaccine to inoculate the population could look very similar to a facility that's actually producing a biological weapon. It's it's very, very hard to tell the difference. For example, what if someone's just ordering ingredients for what would look at face value like a, a standard biological experiment? Is there surveillance happening at that level of laboratories around mm-hmm. the world? That's, that's a conundrum because, you know, 99 times out of 100, they're just making beer in their bathtub. <laughs> US Army scientist Peter Emanuel. The ones that, that are going to be the smoking guns are going to be if somebody wants to buy a 1,500-litre fermenter versus if somebody wants to actually, you know, make a, a nice Pilsner beer in their, in their house. How do you essentially recognize when somebody wants to buy 
that equipment just to make the beer? And how do you recognize when somebody wants to buy that so that they want to you know, make a biological agent for, for, you know, to disseminate in a shopping mall. These days, some of the laborious lab work in science is now being outsourced to companies who see a business opportunity in it. And here's another frontier for risk. You can now order bits of DNA, genes, bacteria, viruses, even request whole experiments to be done for you with the results or biological specimens being sent back to you in the post. Philip Alensos says some of these experiments are now even being run by robots with the emergence of so-called cloud labs in California. At the moment, there's nothing to say that, you know, anybody is sitting anywhere in the world could ask for certain experiments to be done and then they would get the data back from that or they might even be sent organisms or stretches of DNA back from that. And we don't really have the regulatory framework in place yet to check who the people are that are ordering these sorts of experiments. What we're trying to do in the community as national policy, as security policy community, is to, to raise awareness and to start a debate with these companies or a discussion with these companies about how they can ensure that their customers are kosher, essentially. So, for instance, if you're asking for the Ebola uh, virus to be manufactured for you, you, you were synthesized for you, then that would ring alarm bells in the company. Parts of the biotech industry have been proactive here in looking out for rogue requests. And Dr Peter Emanuel agrees the sector has a vital role to play. And so there are agreed upon um, systems in which if somebody were to ask to buy DNA pieces, we had already predetermined to code for something like botulinum toxin. The most toxic protein on the face of the earth. Just a tiny little speck is enough to kill you. To take the gene that encodes for botulinum toxin and then move that into other organisms, that's ill-conceived. You have to ask yourself, you're like, why would you even want to start moving things like that around? And so the company would say, uh, no, you, you can't buy that particular piece of DNA. So they are on the lookout for that? Yeah. So there's no business in that for the companies. They want to sell the products that essentially allow people to make drugs and, and, and products, they don't necessarily want to essentially get themselves embroiled into an international incident. And so they've they banded together and they actually screen. So if somebody were to just call up and be like, hi, I want to buy a piece of DNA that codes for this, the company's going to be like, ah, no. Corporations have a role in preventing bioterrorism, but so do conventions. The UN Convention for Biological Weapons was born out of the Cold War and came into force in 1975. All but 10 countries are signed onto it. But unlike the Chemical Weapons Convention, it doesn't have the policing role or equivalent resources, despite calls for that to happen. And it's struggling to monitor the risks associated with the really rapid pace of new developments in biotech too. This is a major concern for Dr Philip Alensos. The Biological Weapons Convention is a very short document. It is very uh, clear and it is one that encompasses all new developments within this field. So it doesn't date so from that perspective, it's a very good document. It's very clear about what our norm is. There are no loopholes. There are no, you know, in this case or in that case, maybe you can use it. It's very clear. It's an absolute prohibition on biological weapons. What it isn't is good at being responsive to new developments. How does a 40-plus-year-old convention, you know, an international treaty, 
that was negotiated in a completely different day and age. Daniel Feeks from the UN Biological Weapons Convention. How does that now keep pace with you know, synthetic biology, digitization of biology, all of these different things that we're seeing now? I mean, it has to really find a way to balance preventing the, the misuse and people you know, misusing biology. And it has to balance that against you know, allowing, promoting the good sides, the benefits that will come from, in this case, from synthetic biology as well. It's also a treaty that has important elements in it about promoting the peaceful uses of biology as well and saying that the the security concerns, the provisions of the convention that are about security and disarmament should not hamper legitimate trade, you know, legitimate scientific inquiry and, you know, particularly for developing countries. I think we have something very strong behind us, which is this taboo, you know, this idea that, you know, just using biological weapons is just, it's a no-go in the first place, it's illegitimate. But it may be the case that that doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, if we were attacked by a new biological weapon, what then? Is the US Army, for example, building capabilities and resilience so that soldiers, citizens, doctors could act and recover if a pandemic was unleashed? Dr. Peter Emanuel from the US Army. That's a good question. So that that's actually at the very core of what we do. And so the first is, is we, we invest in protective ensemble. So our ability to be able to essentially have tents and masks so that our warfighters are protected. We have decontamination technologies to be able to clean areas, to be able to remediate. Even at the national level, we have pandemic response plans where we, for pandemic influenza, for example, we have pre-positioned strategic national stockpiles so that we can essentially rapidly administer antivirals if the flu or some biological agent gets out there. You, you can't anticipate all threats, but I think that since 2001 to today, we've taken massive steps to be able to, to, to prepare, to be able to respond in the most efficient manner. And so are we completely safe? No, but we're, we're, we're leaps and bounds ahead of where we were 20 years ago. But how would you respond to a biological threat that was unfamiliar? I mean, the flu is a familiar organism, even if it mutates across each season. It's familiar to us. But there's plenty of possibilities that won't be familiar to us. So what would you do first? I mean, you'd have to identify what the pathogen is first. Most of the steps are going to be the same to respond to something irrespective of what it is. We've got a number of programs that are working there that are developing our predictive and analytic capabilities to be able to respond and identify to something very quickly. And so we've actually exercised that. I mean, if you look at the, the recent Ebola outbreak and the response from the global community, we actually were able to get in there and rapidly identify and then begin to deploy some unique countermeasures. And we're actually now in, in, in actual clinical testing on the Ebola vaccine that things like that are the output of these programs where we're essentially responding to a threat, identifying what it is, sequencing it from afar, and then rapidly developing countermeasures. And so that those programs are, are the outcome of that investment. Then the challenge is getting those technologies or solutions or fixes, or therapies, treatments to the populations that need it. And yeah, that's the big challenge. What's interesting is, is that in the last 20 years, technology has changed. And it used to be back in the 80s and the 90s, in order to make vaccines, we had these massive facilities of iron and, and metal that would be fermentation vats and they would make vaccines. But now we have these smaller, nimble, flexible, disposable-like 
technologies that we use to be able to make small batches of vaccines safely. And so that's interesting because what it allows us to do is to to disseminate the, the production and distribution of medicines and, and countermeasures to the global market rather than making them in a central place and then flying them all over the world, we can make them all over the world and just distribute them locally. Back in the civilian world, Dr Piers Millet believes scientists themselves need to take the lead in preventing bioterrorism and actively thinking about the potential misuse of their work. So I think traditionally we've approached this the wrong way around. We've traditionally framed scientists and engineers as part of the problem. They are the people that could be doing bad things and we must find out whether they're not. I think if we're going to actually live in a safer world, in a democratised biology, we need to empower and co-opt those communities to be our own front line in detecting when somebody's doing something wrong, in, ide- in identifying where there may be problems. And that, that requires education, that requires engagement, outreach, and doing a lot of other things that aren't necessarily enforcement and monitoring, because I want to live in a world where everybody is required to think about the implications of their work. All science and engineering has to be responsible, safe, and secure science and engineering. And I don't think we've quite got there yet. And so that's where I would start. Perhaps it slows us down for a year or two, but it's important to have society with you because technology does not exist in a social vacuum. And and society can reject technologies, which is what we saw in the GMO debate in the 1990s in Europe, for instance, which took that community by surprise, which is one of the reasons why the synthetic biology community from very early on ensured that it was engaging with social scientists, with security experts, so that you wouldn't have that sort of societal backlash. And it's really about the society that you want to live in and the values that you want to to have in your society. Lots of technologies, from traditional biotechnology to nuclear power can be used both to power a city, but it can also be used to create a thermonuclear weapon. And so any technology can be misused. Synthetic biology is no different than any other technology in that respect. And sure, you know, we're worried about that. It's why we have a program. It's why I have a job. It's interesting terrain, isn't it? Dr. Peter Emanuel there from the US Army and before him, Dr. Philip Alensos from King's College London. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell and you can catch up with both parts of this series or any past episode in your favourite podcast app or on the Science Friction website. I'll catch you next week. Bye. Hello, Norman Swan here. If you liked that podcast, then I'm sure you'll like mine, The Health Report. We take a deep dive into the evidence which helps you make the best decisions about your health and well-being. Just search for The Health Report in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.